Vishnupad Paramhamsa Parivrajaka Charjashto Satashi Shimad Asi Bhakti Branta Swami Srila Paupad Ki Anantakota Vaishnavrinda Ki All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Shishiguru and Gauranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Ajnana Timaranda Shajjana Shalakaya Chakshurul Militam Jena Tasmai Shri Guruvei Namaha 
I was born in the darkest ignorance, and my spiritual master opened my eyes with the torch of knowledge. I offer my respectful obeisances unto him. Sri Chaitanya Manovistam Stapitam Jenabutale Swayam Rupa Kadamayam Tadatit Swapadantikam. When will Srila Rupa Goswami Prabhupada was established within this material world, the mission to fulfill the desire of Lord Chaitanya give me shelter under his lotus feet. Vancha Kalpata Rupyascha Kripa Sindhubyavicha Patitanam Pavanabyo Vaishnavebyo Namonamaha. I offer my respectful obeisances unto the Vaishnav devotees of the Lord. They are just like desire trees and can fulfill the desires of everyone. And they are full of compassion for the fallen conditioned souls. Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita Gadadhar Shri Vasadi Gaurabhaktavrinda I offer my respectful obeisances unto Shri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Lord Nityananda, Shri Advaita, Gadadhar Pandit, Shri Thakur, and all the devotees of Lord Chaitanya. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. I pray that Shri Shri Radha Kalachanji, Srila Prabhupada, Srila Gurudev, use me as an instrument so that their message can flow through me to give the words to serve the Vaishnavas listening. Today is Tuesday, January 25th, 2022. We are reading from Srimad Bhagavatam Canto 1, Creation, Chapter 13, Dhritarashtra Quits Home, Text 17. Evam griheshu saktanam. Ramatanam tadihaya. Atya kramad avignatya. Kala parama dushtara. Would you like to chant? Evam Thus, Griheshu, in the family affairs. Saktanam, of persons who are too attached. Brahmatanam, insanely attached. Tatihaya, engrossed in such thoughts. Atyakramat, surpassed, avignataha, imperceptibly, kala, eternal time, parama, supremely, dustara, insurmountable. Translation and purport by His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Srila Prabhupada. Insurmountable eternal time imperceptibly overcomes those who are too much attached to family affairs and are always engrossed in their thought. Purport. I am now happy. I have everything in order. My bank balance is quite enough. 
I can now give my children enough estate. I am now successful. The poor beggar sannyasis depend on God, but they come to beg from me. Therefore, I am more than the supreme God. These are some of the thoughts when engrossed the insanely attached householder who is blind to the passing of eternal time. Our duration of life is measured, and no one is able to enhance it even by a second against the scheduled time ordained by the supreme will. Such valuable time, especially for the human being, should be cautiously spent because even a second passed away imperceptibly cannot be replaced. Even in exchange for thousands of golden coins amassed by hard labor, every second of human life is meant for making an ultimate solution to the problems of life, that is, repetition of birth and death and revolving in the cycle of 8.4 million different species of life. The material body, which is subject to birth and death, diseases and old age, is the cause of all sufferings of the living being. Otherwise, the living being is eternal. They are never born, nor do they ever die. Foolish persons forget this problem. They do not know at all how to solve the problems of life, but become engrossed in temporary family affairs, not knowing that eternal time is passing away imperceptibly and that their measured duration of life is diminishing every second without any solution to the big problem, namely repetition of birth and death, disease and old age. This is called illusion. But such illusion cannot work on one who is awake in the devotional service of the Lord. Yudhisthira Maharaj and his brothers, the Pandavas, were all engaged in the service of the Lord Sri Krishna. And they had very little attraction for the illusory happiness of this material world. As we have discussed previously, Maharaji this year was fixed in the service of the Lord Mukunda, the Lord who can award salvation. And therefore, he had no attraction even for such comforts of life as they are available in the kingdom of heaven. Because even the happiness obtained on the planet Brahmaloka is also temporary and illusory. Because the living being is eternal, they can be happy only in the eternal abode of the kingdom of God, Vyoma, from which no one returns to this region of repeated birth and death, disease and old age. Therefore, any comfort of life or any material happiness which does not warrant an eternal life is but illusion for the eternal living being. One who understands this factually is learned, and such a learned person can sacrifice any amount of material happiness to achieve the desired goal known as Brahma Sukham, or absolute happiness. Real transcendentalists are hungry for this happiness, and as a hungry person cannot be made happy by all comforts of life minus foodstuff, so the person hungry for eternal absolute happiness cannot be satisfied by any amount of material happiness. Therefore, the instruction described in this verse cannot be applied to Maharaj Yudhisthira or his brothers and mother. It was meant for persons like the Dhritarashtra, for whom Vridura came especially to impart lessons. So today's um, verse and purport explores the themes of time, attachment, and thoughts. So we'll explore these themes today as well. So when we look at attachment and thoughts, and they pretty much go hand in hand. Like what we think about are things that we're attached to, and what we're attached to is what we think about. So what comes first, our thoughts or our attachments? 
Do you have a guess? So in Bhagavad Gita 262 and 263, Krishna says, while contemplating the objects of the senses, person develops attachment for them. So contemplating is a big word for thinking, right? When we think about something, we attach, we develop attachment for them. So here we're looking at that thoughts come first, right? Thoughts for our senses. And then we become attached to these senses. And then from attachment, lust develops. And from lust, anger arises. And then from anger, complete delusion arises. And from delusion, bewilderment of memory. When memory is bewildered, intelligence is lost. And when intelligence is lost, one falls down again into the material pool to further contemplate the objects of the senses and to further develop attachment. And then further lust develops and further anger and then further delusion and further bewilderment of memory. And then memory is bewildered, intelligence is lost, and so on and so forth. So it starts off with contemplating the objects of the senses, thinking about it. But then if we look at delusion, delusion is a form of thought process. Like How are we thinking about the world? So we think about our senses, which brings us to attachment, but then that attachment leads us to delusion, which is a skewed way of thinking about the world. Skewed thoughts, right? And then when we are deluded, we have bewilderment of memory, which is another form of thought. Memories are another way of thinking. And when our memory is bewildered, intelligence is lost, which is another form of thought. It's how we use our thoughts, you know, intelligence. So it's hard to say what comes first, attachments or thoughts, because they're so intertwined with each other. So we have to find a way to pull ourselves out of the thought and attachment cycle. Well, we can't stop having thoughts, and we can't stop having attachments. So we start thinking about, okay, well, how can we change our thoughts? Can we change our thoughts? Is that even possible? Because everything that we experience in our lives is really due to our thoughts. How we perceive the world, it comes from the thoughts that we have. And those thoughts that we have come from the experiences that we've had. And they come from the attachments that we have. And the attachments we have come from the experiences and thoughts that we have. So it's, again, it's all so interrelated with each other. One thing to realize in all of this is that we have the absolute truth, right, the supreme truth, and then we have the illusory truth. And the material world is filled with the illusory truth. You know, the material world is full of illusions. Not that there isn't anything that's real. It's it's real. We're experiencing it, so it's real, but it's not it's not permanent. Prabhupada says that when we are um, thinking about life, but we're not finding any solutions to the big problem, which is repetition of birth and death, disease and old age, this is called illusion. So the illusion here is this repetition of birth and death, not realizing that there is this repetition of birth and death and thinking that this is the only life we have. So 
the truth is, yes, this is the only life we'll have in this particular body. So that is a um, truth, but it's not the absolute truth, right? So there's that difference. And then there is the truth in reality in the material world, and then there's our experience of that truth. And our experience of that truth is colored by our perception and our thoughts. So, you know, we can experience the same thing. You know, we can all see a sunset at, you know, nighttime. And while we're watching the sunset, we're all experiencing different thoughts and different realizations and different feelings to that same sunset. It's not that the sunset changes. It's not that one person's sunset is the truth and the other's a lie. It's that our thoughts about the sunset is all related to our perceptions and what we've experienced and what we believe and what you know what we've been taught. So our thoughts are are just a part of everything that we've experienced. So it's very possible to change our thoughts because thoughts are just patterns. They're patterns of ideas that we've had. When we start when we believe something, right, we experience something enough times, we start to believe it. And when we believe it, that shapes our thoughts. And then when we have thoughts like that, we get into the habit of having thoughts like that. So it just becomes a pattern. So we can change our pattern of thoughts. Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita 6.6, For one who has conquered the mind, the mind is the best of friends. But for one who has failed to do so, the mind will remain the greatest enemy. So here he's pointing out that it is possible to conquer the mind. You know, how do we conquer these thoughts? Conquering the mind means controlling our thoughts. And, you know, it's hard enough sometimes to control the words that we say, the actions that we have, you know, the, the behaviors that we engage in. But we can control that. That seems easier to control than our mind, our thoughts. Our thoughts are always there. They're racing. They're they're never turned off. Even when we're sleeping, our thoughts are going on, and they perform um, in the way of dreams sometimes, right? So sometimes if we're really thinking about something, um, it shows up in our dreams. And so it comes down to how do we change our thoughts? How do we change that pattern of thinking that we may have? And it takes work. It's intentional. It's not going to just happen. You can't just be like, oh, yeah, I, I don't, I can't think like that, and then change it. You have to catch yourself every moment you're having a thought that's not leading you in the direction you want to go. Um, that may actually be hurting you. So, you know, one example of this is someone says, oh, you look nice today. And I'm so used to, you know, I may be so used to people insulting me, or um, I don't think highly of myself, so then I'm like, well, what do they mean? What do they mean that I look nice today? Do they mean that I don't always look nice? Is there something that I'm always doing? And So I can get all these racing thoughts in my head, and instead of appreciating that moment, I get caught up in, you know, what's going on here? Does this person not like me? Do they like me? And so we get so caught up in our thoughts. And instead... We have to conquer those thoughts. So in that moment, if I catch it, like, wait, 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 hold on. 
You don't know anything about what they meant. And they just made a statement. They may not have meant anything. Don't get carried away. And if I start doing that over and over again, every single time these negative type thoughts happen, then I can easily switch the pattern of my thinking. The other thing that helps shape our thoughts is what we're putting into our mind, right? What are we feeding our mind that is creating these kind of negative thoughts? If we're constantly watching these like soap operas that are super dramatic and um, they entertain because they create this kind of animosity between characters and so you get sucked into watching them because you're like, oh, how are they going to defend each other or fight each other or what's going to happen? So then you start, it starts to subtly change your thought process and how you see the world. But instead, if you're watching or feeding your mind things that are more positive, you see positive interactions between people and you're, um, you know, enjoying how, wow, they, they spoke really sweetly to each other and there was no ulterior motive there, then that starts to shape your thoughts. So we have to be really careful about what we're feeding our mind in order to be able to control our thoughts. And then what we're attached to also shapes our thoughts. And on some level, we're all attached to the basic necessities of life. We're attached to, you know, having food, having clothing, having shelter, right, having um, enough of these things. So it comes down to eating, um, mating, defending, sleeping, having the security of all of these things. And our thoughts are formed around protecting us so that we have enough of these things. So we typically, our, our default setting is to think of these things in a scarcity mode. What if I don't have enough? What if I don't have enough money to feed myself or my family? What if I don't have enough money to pay the rent so we don't have a nice place to stay? What if I don't have enough friends or people to associate with? What if I don't have enough, um, you know, so many different things that we don't, we're so afraid of not having enough that we hold on to what little we have because we're afraid of losing it. And that's another way of attachment. Not just wanting things, but really wanting to hold on to what we have. And when we live from that scarcity mindset and we hold on to things tighter, what we can see is that we actually lose the things that we have because our thoughts are focused on wanting to not lose it. You know, we're like, I don't want to lose the money. I don't want to lose the food. I don't want to lose the friends. I don't want to lose my family. I don't want to lose the house. So we're just focusing on all these things that we don't want to lose but our thoughts are so fickle because all it's thinking of is losing the house, losing the family, losing, right? So it's like, oh, we want to lose these things? Okay. So our thoughts start to shape in such a way that we act in a way that loses these things. And we see this time and time again, whether it's in real life or in stories or in TV, you know, um, Sometimes we are afraid of losing a friend, right? And we think, oh my God, they're spending more time with another person, and we start to feel a little jealous. And instead of feeling this sense of peace, like, oh wow, they found another friend, 
good for them. They have more people to associate. We start thinking, well, what about me? What Do they not like me as much? And so we act out in ways that may be like mean or aggressive or cruel. And the other person is just like, what did I do? You know, what's happening here? And then they don't want to spend time anymore with, you know, with you because every time they spend time with you, there's a fight or you're mean to them because you're so afraid of losing them. So because you're so afraid of losing them, you're acting in such a way to actually lose the person. And we do this in so many different ways um, over and over again. It's kind of a form of self-sabotage. It could also be a form of self-fulfilling prophecies. We are so sure we're going to lose something that we act in such a way that we're definitely going to lose it. So these are different ways that our thoughts and attachments are interrelated. That what we're attached to, we think about, and we think about not losing it. So we want to pull up out of this scarcity mindset and this attachment mindset to having an abundance mindset of thinking of things abundantly in the sense that not worrying about whether or not there's enough money, not worrying whether or not a person likes you, not worrying whether or not you know you have a nice place to stay, and being um, rest assured, having that peace and tranquility that it's going to be provided. It's all going to work out the way it's meant to work out. And you find when you start having that kind of detachment mentality that, okay, whatever I'm given, I'm meant to have, and I'm given as much as I need, then you start to find that you have more and more. It's kind of like if you are holding on to something and your fist is closed and you're holding on so tightly, you're not allowing anything else to enter into your fist. But if you open up your fist, and yes, you you may let go or lose whatever you're holding on to, but now there's so much more room for so much more things to be given to you in your fist, in your in your hand. So it's like that in every part of our lives. So we have to learn how to reframe the way we think about things and reframe how we're attached to things. Because it really comes down to detachment. So Krishna assures us that in Bhagavad Gita 6-7, one who has conquered the mind... The super soul is already reached, for one has attained tranquility. To such a person, happiness and distress, heat and cold, honor and dishonor are all the same. So he's showing us that when we reach this level of peace, that really we are rest assured that we're going to have everything that we're going to have, that we need to have, then we're no longer in anxiety, like, will I have enough? And we can reach our super soul, the super soul, you know, Krishna. And that we have no concern of happiness and distress because it's all the same. Hot and cold, honor and dishonor. So from this verse, we can think that, okay, it's conquering the mind that will allow us to lead to Krishna. But he also says in Bhagavad Gita 264 and 265, a person free from all attachment and aversion and able to control their senses through regulative principles of freedom can obtain the complete mercy of the Lord. For one thus satisfied in Krishna consciousness, the threefold miseries of material existence no long, exist no longer. In such satisfied consciousness, one's intelligence is soon well established. So here he's saying we have to 
um, free ourselves from attachment and aversion, and then we can gain control of our intelligence and learn um, about Krishna and attach ourselves to Krishna. So really, he's saying it's both things, our thoughts, you know, while contemplating the senses, and as well as our attachments. So it's kind of like we can't really um, cut one off without the other, and we can't really not have one. So we have to work on breaking the cycle of attachments and thoughts. And that's where time comes in. Time is the great equalizer. You know, Krishna says, time I am. Right? So Krishna is time. He is, God is time. Um, and time is also the great equalizer. And what that means is that rich or poor, you know, um, white or black, Indian, Mexican, woman, man, um, child, adult, we all have the same amount of time in a day. We all have 24 hours in a day. Now, we may have different responsibilities and different obligations that come from our attachments and from our thoughts that may seem like other people have more time than we do. Um, they may have, you know, what appears to be more free time or more focused time than we do. But we all have the same amount of time. And when a moment is lost, no amount of money can bring it back. Prabhupada states that in the purport, that we all have this, the same amount of time, and once it's lost, it's lost. So really it comes down to looking at, okay, I have this time. How am I spending this time? And how we spend our time is based on our thoughts and attachments. But how we... What thoughts and attachments we have is also based on how we spend our time. So if we decide that we want to break this cycle of, you know, attachment and misery and these thoughts that don't serve us, we have to spend the time to do so. And we have to intentionally decide how are we going to use our time? How are we going to spend the time that we have? Are we going to invest it or are we going to waste it? And uh, Prabhupada says over and over that to spend our time wisely is to devote our lives to Krishna. That is the best investment we can make with time. In Srimad Bhagavatam 10, 16, 41, the wives of the Kaliya serpent pray, Obeisances unto you, to Krishna, who are time itself, the shelter of time, and the witness of time in all its phases. And the purport, Srila Prabhupada says, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, although appearing in different incarnations, can never be limited by time, since he is time itself, the shelter of time, and the witness of time in all its phases. So if Krishna is time, then how are we spending this time? You know, are we dedicating ourselves to learning more about Krishna, to talking about Krishna, to thinking about Krishna, to attaching ourselves to Krishna. Because Krishna is time. So if we're doing that, that is the best way we can invest our time. So in order to do that, we have to spend this intentional time of breaking our thought patterns, 
of realizing what our attachments are and how we can um, detach ourselves from this the illusory energy of the material world and attach ourselves to the permanent energy of Krishna, to the spiritual world. So it's all, like, it's kind of interrelated. Again, now we can throw time into the mix of time, thoughts, and attachments, and it, it all comes together, right? How we're spending our time is determined by our thoughts and our attachments, and what we're thinking about is depending on how we spend our time and what we're attached to, and what we're attached to depends on how we spend our time and what thoughts we have. So we really have to break this cycle, and it comes from wanting to do it, this desire, you know, that we want to get out of this material world of misery, of birth and death, you know, this threefold misery. And when we have that spark of that thought of there's got to be something more, that's when Krishna kind of lights the way for us, guides us out of that delusion in as much as we're ready for. And the more we say, okay, I'm following in this, you know, the light out of this delusion, the more Krishna shines the light. So we just have to say, okay, I'm ready, Krishna, and show some ways that we're ready, right? Whether it's, well, we want to chant our rounds. That's basic, right? Chanting the Hare Krishna Mahar Mantra every day helps us to think about Krishna and attach ourselves to Krishna. But also reading about Krishna You know, I was thinking about how we spend our time is really important, Um, especially as we're serving Krishna. We want to make sure that we're not wasting our time in things that are not going to further serve how we serve Krishna as well. So we are serving Krishna with our thoughts, everything that we do, everything that we offer, all that we are, we're doing that for Krishna. And then we're also wanting to make sure that we're not spending our time doing things that may appear to serve Krishna because they are serving Krishna, but they may not be serving our service to Krishna. For instance, as a, as a doctor, someone who's focused on helping people heal, as someone who enjoys public speaking, I'm focusing a lot of my activities on furthering, you know, the way I speak to people, how I speak to people, getting in front of people, educating them, um, helping them understand how to improve their health, and using that as a medium to understand that we're not this body. So that's where my services are focused. Now, sometimes I get asked to do services that may not seem to be in that focus, right? Um, oh, there's this festival going on. Can you help and volunteer your time? And I volunteer my time, and that's still service to Krishna, but then it takes me away from my service to Krishna, which then can, you know, actually be a slippery slope there. So we have to be very intentional. And I was thinking about this earlier, and I was thinking, you know, in the beginning, Srila Prabhupada, to spread the Krishna consciousness movement, was doing everything. You know, he was doing the arti, he was doing the cleaning the temple room, you know, he was cooking the prasadam, cooking the feast, until he trained up enough people to handle all of these services. It wasn't saying that he was too good to do them, but he realized that his time and his energy and his knowledge was 
used was to be used for something even more important that nobody else can do, and that was translating the books. And that's really, if you look at how once he established a few temples, once he established a good amount of uh, di- disciples to that he trained up, he set he delegated a lot of the work of spreading the message of Krishna consciousness to his disciples so that he could focus on translating the books, translating the Srimad Bhagavatams, translating the Chaitanya Charitamrita, writing the small books, because he understood that that was his eternal service. By having these books here, his words will always be here for all of time. And, you know, he, he didn't actually need any disciples to spread the Krishna consciousness movement. He had that power and energy. He was empowered so well, so strongly by Krishna to be able to do it all. But it was that, one, he gave that opportunity, he delegated the opportunity to so many of his disciples. And then that also let him have more free time to translate. And we know the translation is so important to him because he was doing it all the way until his on his deathbed. He was still translating. He could barely speak, and he was still translating. You know, so we can see from that it was the most important thing for him to get done, and he did everything that he could to free up enough time for him to do that. So we have to look at you know what is our biggest contribu- contribution to um, the Krishna consciousness movement, and how can we delegate or um, clear away so many things that can be done by other people that we can focus on what is our biggest contributors. Now, sometimes we have to do things in order to actually recharge ourselves. Like, for instance, I love dressing the deities, and that is a way that I can recharge myself, that I can stay connected, that helps me to understand what my role is. Does dressing the deities actually help me directly you know, teach people about health? Maybe, maybe not. It's it's hard to say. But it does definitely help me recharge myself, give me the energy and the you know, the the thoughts to go forward and continue in that service. So we have to be really intentional about how we're spending our time, how we're thinking our thoughts and what we're attached to, because it all um, intertwines and creates the experiences that we have and how we're going to deepen our relationship with Krishna. So I'll end here and ask if there are any questions or comments. That a person can only be happy in the eternal abode of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. So, you see, you mentioned Sri Prabhupada, how he was here in this earth. And Prabhupada said that his next place he's going to go would be the hellish planets. A couple of times he said that. And we also know that Lord Chaitanya has eternal associates that every time he appears, they, they come along with him. And... We uh, heard Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati is also still preaching somewhere 
in the material world. Prabhupada said he was. So um, we also know that Arjuna is uh, Ramananda Rory, or Ramananda Rory is Arjuna. So there's all these examples of devotees who are, who are undergoing the repetition of birth and death. They die and then they they come back when again. So they. So how are are they? They're not happy, or is how it says that a person can only be happy if they're in the eternal spiritual world. So how about all these devotees, that pure devotees, that keep on taking birth in the material world? It's an interesting question. Um, so there's a few different thoughts that come to my head when I hear that. One is. On some level, happiness is not the goal, right? Because it says when one has conquered the mind, happiness and distress are all the same. So one level of peace is understanding that happiness and distress is all the same and that peace comes from eternal, that joy, bliss comes from um, the eternal internal that we are, so it's our soul. The other is that um, I was just reading today or yesterday, and the reading that I'm in the Srimad Bhagavatam that I'm in, I think I'm in Canto 7 right now. Over and over the verses on Prabhupada stating that, and I don't have the exact quote, so I'm just kind of paraphrasing here, that wherever we are, as long as we are thinking about Krishna, that place automatically becomes the abode of Krishna. So for people that are highly exalted, like Ramananda Roy and all the associates of Lord Chaitanya, they actually were in the material world, but they were not of the material world. They were just here playing. And they very well understood that they were playing a role. Like that was part of the role that they're playing. It's like they were on stage and they were playing this character. They understood that. So when the play is over, the characters get out of the costume and they go on and those characters seem to no longer exist. But we, they understood that they do exist beyond the body. So even though they were in a body that seemingly dies, you know, is born and dies, they weren't bewildered by that birth and death. And part of um, the delusion is that the birth and death is all there is, that there isn't anything beyond it. So we become extremely attached because we think that's this is all there is. The freedom of birth and death is understanding that there is not this is not all there is. It comes from, again, the thoughts that we have surrounding birth and death. So if we're thinking that oh, this person is born and this person is dying because that's what we're seeing, then we're in that delusion because we're not seeing the truth, the absolute truth of the matter, which is that that soul lives on and has taken another birth and another death to move on to. And that is the cycle of birth and death. Now, for the eternal associates of even Srila Prabhupada, um, eternal associates of Lord Chaitanya, the eternal associates of Krishna, 
it seems to us that they're going through birth and death, and, oh, they came back, so now they're going through the cycles of birth and death. But for them, it's just pleasing Krishna, because they're not thinking of their own happiness. So wherever they are, they're already in the spiritual world. So they're already free from the illusion of birth and death. Even though they're going through it, they're not deluded by it. Does that make sense? So I hope that answers your question. All right. Then I'll end here. Tarantara Shimad Bhagavatam ki.